0: This is Misinfo Weekly, a somewhat weekly program about misinformation in our time. Misinfo Weekly is made by the Unit for Data Science and Analytics at Arizona State University Library.
1: This week, we're going to discuss a misinformation event that's a bit closer to home, one that involves our university, Arizona State. We're going to discuss the case of the Me Too STEM leader who created a fake Twitter account misrepresenting herself as an indigenous scholar and professor at Arizona State University, but actually didn't exist. Michael, can you talk a little bit about what happened in this case? Yeah, so this is Dr.
0: Bethan McLaughlin, who created a sock puppet account. That faculty member uh, supposedly worked at Arizona State University, and it caused a lot of attention recently because that sock puppet account was reported as dying of COVID-19, drawing all kinds of attention and sympathy. That attention kind of brought out the facts and exposed this person as the operator of this sock puppet account and has had to cop to all kinds of things. All of the material around this whole event, the account, all of the tweets associated with it, have been suspended and are no longer available by Twitter.
1: So I know a couple of weeks ago we talked about sock puppets or a couple of episodes ago. Can you briefly review what a sock puppet account is?
0: Yeah, just for for those who don't tune into every single podcast we make, a sock puppet account is where you create an account, but it is an identity that is not your own.
1: And oftentimes you don't link the two together, but Beth McLaughlin linked them together whenever she announced the passing of her, the professor that she created in her fake account, basically.
0: Yeah, it's almost like an interesting combination of a sock puppet account and a botnet where the population of that botnet Net is one. Hmm, that's an interesting way to put it. I really didn't think about it that way. Yeah, I, I don't think. Again, I, I'm sure there are plenty of examples of people having in public conversations with accounts that they also operate. But it just struck me as a as a very interesting application of a sock puppet account where you're able to kind of both be friends with this identity that you've created and. And then also not be that person that you've created because it's kind of like your imaginary friend on Twitter.
1: But then by connecting the two, that basically was the the thread that folks could use to eventually unravel the ruse.
0: Yes. And, you know, to be fair, McLaughlin's organization, Me Too STEM, was supposed to be about gender discrimination in the field of science. It's come under all kinds of scrutiny about sidelining persons of color and all kinds of bullying behaviors. We won't get into that too much here, but it's it's remarkable that this account served the goals and agenda of that organization, at least ostensibly, right? So this person was a kind of explicit accessory to McLaughlin's organization and the missions therein. That's why I talk about it as the kind of like a botnet with a population of one, because they kind of both cross-amplified each other's signals in in a way kind of like a botnet might.
1: We don't know for sure, but this looks like basically a strategic use of this account to bolster gaps in the organization or to counter criticisms of the Me Too STEM organization.
0: Right. A little bit of speculation here on our part, but I think there's no doubt that the use of this account was completely self-serving. I don't think there's any disputing that part.
1: So before we get into some of the discussions of tactics and sort of issues with studying this case, how did you find out about this case?
0: Yes. So I got an email from a colleague who I'm co-teaching a course with in the spring on information overload. And uh, so we'll constantly send messages back to one another whenever something comes up that fits the idea that anything having to do with people encountering too much information or encountering misinformation and disinformation. And so he sent me something on Friday that said, can you believe this? There's no way that This isn't going to escape the national news. And it was very prophetic because sure enough, on Monday, it hits the national news. So read about it Monday, Tuesday morning, heard about it Friday afternoon.
1: So I heard about it, uh, not from a colleague, but I'm part of a a Facebook group called The Professor Is In. And uh, the woman who leads this group and talking about different issues in academia and job searches and such, she posted the initial sort of death announcement, for lack of a better term, of when McLaughlin said, you know, the person who was behind this sciencing by account had passed away of COVID. And I became more interested in reading the comments because senior faculty from Arizona State University were really interested in what happened because McLaughlin claimed that The fake professor was forced to teach in person in the spring semester after ASU had already gone online during COVID. So, if this was true, then that would have been violating university policy. And they were, the senior faculty were really concerned about this and wanted to bring it to the attention of the faculty senate and of the administration. So, we went through this whole process, or I watched this process where they were trying to figure out where she was located. Like where in the university? Yes, we're trying to figure out what department or what school she was in, which ASU is fairly unique and, dare I say, innovative in our structure. And I think that made it easier for McLaughlin to create this fake persona and for no one to really notice that. Because in a more traditionally structured university, it would be obvious what department this person in neuroscience and in STEM would be. And if you go check that department or school, they're not there. That's a problem. But at ASU, we have very innovative structures in the the schools. So faculty are co-located in interdisciplinary teams. So it's really obvious to us that we go, oh, she's not in our school, but she must be in some other school. Yes. I think that the way
0: that ASU organizes into schools instead of colleges means that people are distributed all over the place in terms of where they are organizationally. That doesn't necessarily adhere to what we would think about as a convention, conventional disciplinary home. So if someone is a, in natural science of any kind, they might not necessarily be in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences studying geology or, or something like that, right? They might be in a School of Space and Earth Exploration or in a center, out of something like that with a very specific role. So a lot of different intellectual recombinings going on with your organization, but that means that your departmental or school affiliation, it's plausible that you could be in many different places. That really helped things out in terms of creating this character that felt believable, do you think?
1: Yeah, it's often at ASU when you want to find someone who does work similar to you. We don't have the usual spaces. You know, colleagues that might do work with you Could be in really uniquely named schools, or could be co-located with other disciplines that a traditional, more traditional university wouldn't have. So it would make complete sense. We're always trying to figure out where other people are, and it doesn't seem odd to us that someone's in a different school or in a different college. Yeah. So thinking
0: about how we heard of it, there are some kind of bones of this lie. Right. There are gangplanks of this of this fictional narrative. One is that this person was a Hopi scientist and scholar who worked at Arizona State University, which is this really big university with a lot of different academic and intellectual schools that are broken up into kind of cross-functional groups. So we've got this, this fictional person working at a real university that m- might be difficult to, to navigate, especially from people who don't work at ASU. And then we've got this death uh, of that scholar because of their they them being compelled to teach during the COVID-19 outbreak. And so those are the, the in my mind those are the three kind of gangplanks of this fictional narrative as it pertains to the recent news. I realize that there is because Twitter deleted it there's an unrecoverable history there of interactions between this sock puppet account and all kinds of scientists and scholars. But from the best of our ability to glean, it seems like this person had some kind of a following and had relationships and interactions on a consistent basis with all kinds of highly educated scientists on Twitter.
1: Yeah, so let's say a little more real quick about why is this so difficult to study. So we know if we go to Beth McLaughlin's account or if we go to the science scene underscore by account, we both see that this account is Uh, now been suspended. So you can't see any of those tweets. So that means that basically all the data trails that of how this account has been acting, at least we know this account, the Science Team by account was active uh, at least before January, but we can't go back and look at that data because it's no longer archived anywhere. And Twitter's just kind of blocked off access to that information. Right. So looking at the
0: internet archive Wayback machine, January in 2019 is the only record of Sciencing underscore by, I think I'll I'll just refer to it as Sciencing by from here on out. But that Twitter account, that's the the only capture from that site. But it's also inaccessible all for the last couple of days now because of some kind of error that I'm I'm not sure why. So yeah, irrecoverable. A lot of the stuff that's going on here, and I think that that might or that definitely complicates our ability to understand what really happened here, leading up to this dramatic death or kind of theatrical social media death of this scholar, which got all this attention and created the situation that we're in now.
1: And also briefly to mention, for those that don't know, the the Internet Archive and their Wayback Machine is a, a publicly accessible archive of large portions of the web that go back all the way to the middle 90s. So you can see what, you know, ASU's website looked like in 1990 and be confused about what design was like back then or or look at Amazon in the early days or the White House, but they also archive a lot of Twitter pages or Twitter account profiles. And they happened to attempt to archive this Sciencing By account one time back in January, and that archive was incomplete. So we know the page existed at that moment in time. We just can't see any of that content and there aren't any archives before or after. So we're still left questioning how long this account really existed. So how long was it that Beth Ann McLaughlin created this ruse and this fake account and curated these relationships with people? Right. So we can't we can't
0: know just by looking at Twitter, there would have to be significant investigation to really find out how much this goes. So, again, I don't want to over represent our perspective and what kind of data we have available to understand this. At the same time, though, I feel like there's some important kind of things that we can understand about misinformation events that we can derive from this particular incident that can be really helpful going forward.
1: So if we don't have access to these two Twitter accounts, because they've both been suspended by Twitter itself, what information do we have left? So
0: what we have is any work that journalists did to capture images of tweets. That's part of our record. Any replies that exist on Twitter that might have left a kind of mirror image of the account, if you will, to use a metaphor, we still have access to those. Sean, can you think of any other data that we might be able to use to help reconstruct what went happened here?
1: So we also have access to the articles themselves. But remember, there really aren't any news articles about this account until the incident happened. So basically right at the time of the account being suspended, that's when journalists were writing news articles about this. So we have that data and we just have the general conversation and comments around this account. But that's, that's all the data that we actually have access to at this moment in time. Yeah. And so I
0: think that might hit on a kind of first lesson learned from this event where there, I mean, there are uncountable lessons learned from something like this. However, but one thing that that's kind of important to take home is that because of the account suspension, then a lot of what happened before this event is irrecoverable. A lot of what happened around this event is irrecoverable. And our best perspective into it is actually people writing stories about this staged death of a fictional character on Twitter, but because so much stuff has been suspended, it's hard for us to gauge how big of a deal this was. Like, did it generate a hundred people viewing it on Twitter? Did it generate 500 people viewing it on Twitter where thousands of people tuned into something like this? That's a little bit harder to gauge.
1: And after the event, this became a story for the popular press, the mainstream media. So it was discussed on local television stations in Phoenix, Arizona. It was published by the New York Times, the Arizona Republic newspaper, as well as various academic blogs and news outlets. So we have a whole constellation of of news media. We also have stories from people who had interacted with the science team by account, you know, over time. So that's that's kind of the the breadcrumbs that are left, sort of the trail that's left. But we can't actually go back to the account itself and look at this because since you know, Twitter's removed this information and no one archived this account in advance because no one thought this account was really fake until recently.
0: Yeah, and I'll, I'll say one more word about why it's so difficult to ha- tell what happened because by the time that you and I get clued in about something like this, then we want to search on Twitter using the Twitter interface. For, for developers to be able to see what kind of data is in there. The most recent tweets that that interface is going to return are the ones of people talking about this scandal, not necessarily the people who were tied up in that scandal, if I can make that distinction. So basically, Twitter will only return so many tweets to anybody searching it unless you have very special privileges. But most of the time, if you're a researcher or anyone else, then there's a limit. And if something has happened where everyone's talking about that thing and then you search for that thing, well, you've got a big blob of tweets that are talking about the scandal, but you don't really have as much access to all the social media information that predated that scandal. So it creates some confounds there. It's very difficult to tell how significant something was because everyone's already talking about how significant it was. And that's the data you get instead of the stuff you were looking for in the first place.
1: So to put it recently, maybe when we're gathering information from Twitter and other social media platforms, we have a bias towards information that's more recent rather than the historical data that in many cases like this is actually really important to get access to. But that's sort of been cut off.
0: Yep. Yep. 100%. And so because of that, so this is a long way around, but because of that, we don't know exactly how well attended this funeral was online on Twitter. And I say funeral because the person in charge of the sock puppet account actually did a Twitter eulogy. And that is available. Some of those screen captures are available on Twitter. But I'll read an excerpt. I don't know what her students or my students who loved her will do. She made million First Nations indigenous contacts for my organization. I'm glossing there. I don't have the lifetime of goodwill or knowledge of everyone she helped. That event has something like 375 likes, 465 likes, depending on where it is on that thread. That particular eulogy seemed to generate moderate impact there. But any other tweets associated with this person's death, we just don't know. So that is just one small piece of the puzzle. 350, 465 likes, and 25 retweets. You know, that's that's something, but... I, you know that's not that's not a huge amount in a world where thousands and thousands of retweets are possible that's really going viral
1: well and i think this is a great place to point out the difference between what we're seeing on social media so what we're seeing you know around this eulogy versus now there's a new york times article washington post article news you know cnn picked this up so there's actually been a lot more activity post suspension than pre suspension
0: yeah. And this is a, this is another takeaway, right? So if the first takeaway was some of this stuff is irrecoverable. And the second takeaway is if many major journalistic outlets have stories about this, it can't help, but seem like a bigger deal than 25 retweets. And we can't measure everything in retweets, right? I'm not trying to be completely unfair, but we run the risk of the coverage about that thing making it seem like it was a much bigger deal than it was. Now it's a bigger deal for lots of reasons. But when I say big deal, I mean how much of an impact it didn't have on social media in terms of just the influence and audience reached. This is something that we've tossed around as the the Paw Patrol paradox, wherein the, you know, we had indicated that, that case where something like, you know, 40 tweets ended up being the focus of a New York Times story that ended up being national news. And so just something very small gets represented in the newspaper as something that's much bigger than it is. A lot of times, because it's very difficult to, in in, uh, in the journalistic form, represent something that on social media is in a network form. And so that can be a tough thing. I'm not trying to say that that's easy, but I think an inadvertent effect is that it can maybe amplify the size of the social media event that it's narrating or describing or trying to report on.
1: So this network that, you know, we can think of, if you're not familiar with networks, kind of think of a spider web and how there's all these connections and points in the web. That's kind of what the network would be. So how is this account?
0: Every Twitter account is a point in that web,
1: right? Yep. And so how is this, how is Beth Ann's account? How is the the buy account? How are they connected? And how are they connected with this greater MeToo STEM community as well as a STEM community? And we don't know but because of the juicy details, I mean, you know, as soon as someone told me about this and I read this online, I was interested. I'm like, what the heck is going on? A professor dies of COVID at my university. I mean, I'm intrigued. I'm just like, you know, let's figure this out. So of course there's these hooks into this narrative that make it a great news story. And then it turns into potentially something larger than it actually was just because of the narrative and the drama that's surrounding it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, You know, the attention about, you know, how kind of reprehensible it is to exploit the identity of native peoples to create some kind of Twitter account that you can hold up for what you think is some kind of tokenized heroism that is worth people paying attention to. That is worth news stories, right? Not trying to say that those aren't worth paying attention to. Or to be careful that if something's in a newspaper reporting on social media, that we don't assume that, that this is a, a, a viral event with thousands and thousands of people. We should think about these events differently in some ways, but then pay attention to some of those things that are moral and ethical problems that it doesn't matter if it's one tweet or 10,000 tweets.
1: So in some ways, we can take this back to Plandemic, for example, and, and Dr. Mykovich And she is saying, I'm a famous scientist. And she's not. You know, she was just beginning in the fields and then she left. So in other ways, you know, the way the news could be describing this is that this account was very influential and we don't have any evidence of that just because the data is not there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So thinking through, we've got some problems with recovering what happened. We've got some problems with how we represent social media and how we understand social media events through journalism. That can be a very complicated thing. And then the other thing I think that is a, is, a, is a thing worth talking about in the aftermath of something like this is all of the downstream consequences that weren't necessarily intentional. You know, a lot of times we think about misinformation in terms of tactics, but it can be really helpful to think about it in terms of effects instead. You know, Sean, would you characterize this as any kind of disinformation operation on, on the part of McLaughlin? I would
1: characterize the creation of the account and curation of that over an extended period of time. So we know this account was active for at least eight months. And I believe it was
0: longer, but Oh, longer than a year, yeah. Cause that that was January twenty nineteen. So definitely like a year and a half for sure.
1: So this you kind of curated this account as a long game. And I would argue then this purposeful curation of this sock puppet account as, and like posing as a legitimate professor at ASU. I would consider that disinformation because remember miss versus dis is the intention. So this is that she intentionally created this fake account with this fake persona.
0: Right. So her intent was pretty straight, like again, to the best of our ability
1: to ascertain. Yes. The intent was to deceive. Right. Right. Got it. Got it. Yeah. There are some other consequences here. I would say it's disinformation because of the sort of long fake game that she's created with this this fake account. But the consequences of that, I, I can't imagine. I would posit that she didn't intend, you know, the blowback in the university, the blowback on her and having her account be deleted. I don't think that I would imagine a lot of that wasn't thought through. And we, we can't know unless we talk to her. Yeah. So let's talk about those consequences. So
0: it feels like some short-term consequences were on purpose, like installing yourself by proxy back into a community of scholars and scientists that it seems like she was kind of on the outside of at this point.
1: Yes, in a way you could think of, you know, she could potentially be creating this account as a way to address concerns that were expressed about this Me Too STEM organization and its lack of inclusion of scholars of color. Yeah, and
0: then her position, uh, she was a former assistant professor working outside of universities. This Twitter account kind of gave her a different kind of access to people currently working in universities. Yes. So that was a kind of, that seems like an immediate consequence that was probably on purpose. And then giving her kind of cachet for having a friend uh, who was a Hopi scientist Right, Many people kind of now looking at this say, wow, this is kind of very transparent, right? Just trying to burnish her image by using underrepresented peoples as props to show how virtuous she is and that this is really a kind of elaborate virtue signaling.
1: True, but you also need to think about in academic communities, you know, there's a lot of trust. We say we're in a certain position, then you know, so-and-so vouches for you and then you're part of, you're kind of, you're now in and you're part of that community. So we're not doing background checks on each other at conferences or even online. We just kind of do an initial check of an account and then we're like, yes, that's part of our community now. So she used that as a tool to then create a larger network within those communities.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So those are the intended consequences is leverage the trust habits of people in academia to, burnish her own image, and then to maybe gain access to certain conversations and circles. And then I, I think, you know, you've pointed this out, the idea of using a large university as just a kind of location where this person might be untraceable. But I think that was definitely a technique for concealing this person's identity in a way that helped propagate the lie. But let's talk about some unintended consequences. Of this, when when you think about unintended consequences of this disinformation, where do we start to see these unintended misinformation consequences?
1: Well, potentially. So these are all guesses on our part because we haven't talked to you know educated guesses, but but fair guesses. Okay. So I think that the sort of hunt within ASU by its own faculty to try to find out what happened and to try to right any wrongs by the administration. I don't think that's an intended consequence, nor then ASU's internal search. Once faculty went to administration, then the university is trying to figure out like, what the heck is going on? Why would someone be teaching in a classroom when we've told you if the university shut down, what's going on? So that hunt internally and the it was a drama. Then that led to an even more intensive uh, review of both of these Twitter accounts to try to figure out, well, that person's not here. So what's really going on? Yeah. And the confusion
0: created was certainly a downstream effect that certainly isn't a direct consequence, but an indirect consequence of this stuff. And yeah, I tend to be on the side reading about this. That this person didn't design this whole thing as a way to confuse Arizona State University. But this is what happened. It momentarily confused some folks at Arizona State University trying to figure out what happened. It also created a phenomenon of indeterminate size at this point on social media that linked ASU to the brutal and negligent treatment of a faculty member that resulted in their death because of their handling of, of, of a pandemic teaching. Which, if it's 350 likes on Twitter or 10,000 likes on Twitter, there are plenty of people who deal with public relations that would pay lots of money to undo people having in front of their eyeballs this idea that a university indirectly killed one of their professors.
1: So there's the sort of anger, confusion, distrust that's emerging from the faculty when this was initially announced, that this professor that it, we found out didn't exist passed away of COVID due to supposed negligence on the university's part. And then there's also the public persona. And all of this is happening at probably one of the worst possible times is that when the university is just about to reopen for classes in the fall. And they're saying to the public, here are our plans. Here's how the university is going to be safe. And in the middle of this conversation, this sort of confusion and misinformation about a fake faculty member just causes a bunch of chaos.
0: Yeah, there's no way this is helpful as people look around the room and say, okay, everyone's going back to school sooner or later. This kind of news creates that kind of confusion that misinformation and disinformation campaigns are kind of known for. But again, this isn't an example of somebody saying, at least to our best Knowledge, Right. We, we probably guess that this isn't somebody who said, you know what I'm going to do with this account is I want to to damage the reputation of of a, of a university. This is a long game that I've been playing for years. That's going to culminate in a way to really inflict maximum harm on the reputation of another school. I maybe it happened. It just seems like all the other pieces that we have thinking through this. This was more of an unintended consequence.
1: And we also have to think of the different groups here. So, and faculty become uncomfortable for specific reasons. Administration, they have issues and become uncomfortable. And then parents thinking about sending their children. So we, or impact, this impacts these different groups initially as this story develops. But we also know that the correction doesn't travel as far as the initial misinformation. So, the impact of these sort of initial reports that an ASU faculty member passed away due to COVID because they were forced to teach, even though that was untrue, that initial misinformation spread a lot farther than the correction. Because the the misinformation is really interesting and the correction that didn't happen, kind of boring in some ways. Yes. And again,
0: won't travel as quickly or as far. What will travel quickly and far is the kind of absurd at times absurd and, you know, completely kind of unethical use of native peoples and native identities and whatever this person's understanding of native culture was really as a commodity to help out her own image, that is another kind of Unintended. I don't know. It's tough to say, but those consequences I do not want to underestimate. So there's probably some of those consequences that were maybe intended or seen as like a necessary uh, means to an end. But then there's, a, you know, when you put this kind of image out there and and ingratiate it to other people for a very long period of time, you know, I, I don't want to sell short exactly how damaging it is to just have white people dress up as native people, and then pal around with people on Twitter. That is a damaging and corrosive and deeply unethical thing to do.
1: I think that's the most infuriating part of this entire story, is that she took an underrepresented group and then basically infiltrated that group with a fake persona for her own purposes. That's that's unconscionable. And then killed off that person virtually.
0: Yeah, as part of as part of a theatrics that would, again, boost this person's image. And I this isn't a political commentary show, but at the same time, you can see how people's sympathies can be exploited so that if, as this person did, advertise this person who is kind of actively fighting for justice and to make right a lot of structural wrongs and that they are a champion and a symbol of this, that is exploitative of people's sympathies. That is exploitative of people's reflexes to want to see justice sometimes symbolically performed. And that is a vulnerability. Um, So people using virtue signaling as a vulnerability to exploit people for misinformation or for disinformation That isn't something that we hear every day. We're more used to hearing about how people will lie to undereducated voters and exploit them that way. We don't
1: hear a lot of
0: lying to very educated people and exploiting them through different means.
1: And so if we think about possible outcomes of that, now there might be increased scrutiny of legitimate scholars online for people to kind of prove who they are or unconsciously folks might be, okay, I need to investigate this person a little more to make sure that they're real. And that's something they might not have done before this sciencing buy account was found out to be a fraud.
0: Yeah, there's an enormous toxic cloud emitted by this masquerade and by this treatment of Native identity and of Native culture that I am not qualified to speak on in an authoritative way at all. But it is important to just recognize that this is a huge consequence of this particular brand of sock puppet activity.
1: So I could say in summary, this, this does not make the lives of our indigenous colleagues and scholars any easier. This just makes it more difficult.
0: Yes, yes, certainly, 100%. And when we think about you know, some of those downstream consequences that have really systemic and long-lasting effects, this kind of goes up there at the top. But there's other kinds of distrust added to this as well. That you mentioned the the trust relationships that people form on Twitter could be damaged, how we even evaluate appeals to people's like this this whole organization wasn't advertising itself as doing bad stuff, right The official mission of this organization is something that many people agreed with as being kind of serving justice and doing some very important issues. It does damage to those kinds of causes as well. It makes people more skeptical
1: it basically we could think of this as tainting everything that this organization and these accounts were connected to. There's some bit of tainting, some much stronger than others, some just sort of a little bit, but these important causes that these accounts were connected to now have to do even more work. And this is all unnecessary because of the scandal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so in kind of looking at all of this uh, as an event, you know, we can see that there's a narrow band of consequences that were probably definitely intended some consequences that might have been intended, and a lot of them that are going to last a while, that are going to last a lot longer than this person's individual reputation. Uh, and when I say this person, I mean the person behind the sock puppet account, uh, Professor McLaughlin. This kind of work has consequences that are really instructive for us to be able to see that you know, any kind of mis- or disinformation event has some short-term consequences, but it it is always important to evaluate some of those longer-term, more durable consequences that may seem subtle at first, but are definitely worth paying attention to.
1: And I'd say oftentimes those consequences happen after the news media and other organizations have shifted their attention away from this situation and moved on to something else. Everyone's still kind of reeling and will be reeling from this for quite a while to come. Yes. And this is not uncommon in misinformation events. That, like you are saying, these long-term impacts, and oftentimes when we cover these stories, uh, by we I mean sort of you know the public in general. When we pay attention to these stories, we're looking at them as the short-term impact, not the longer-term impact. So, in many ways, we can there are parallels between this and, for example, like natural disasters. There is a short-term you know initial disaster, and then there is a whole long rebuilding process to recover from that disaster. That's something that can happen in high-profile misinformation events, too, is the initial event, and then there's a long recovery phase to try to address what happened to that community as a result of the misinformation event.
0: Yeah, and this seriously interferes with people's ability to deal with loss. When someone loses a colleague for real, this might be hanging over that event. When So our our ability to be resilient and to adapt to things and to come back after loss is damaged in multiple kinds of capacities by stuff like this. And I, I still can't emphasize enough that this is a different profile of person who is taken in by misinformation or disinformation than a lot of times. How many articles are published out there, Sean, do you think that are about people who have low information or spend way too much time online or are older and don't have access to a lot of social interactions. And that's what really makes them vulnerable to misinformation. Would you agree that there's right now a kind of canonical profile of somebody who is vulnerable to misinformation?
1: Yes, we've created uh, the persona that propagates misinformation as, you know, low education, low expertise, and that makes them vulnerable to misinformation. But like you're saying, this is the opposite of that population. These are supposedly the experts in their fields and they're the ones that were kind of fooled. And I'm using air quotes here in fooled, but this sort of con was perpetrated on them for over at least a year and a half.
0: Yeah, and another thing I'll add to that is trust or distrust of institutions. A lot of times when we think about misinformation and conspiracy theories, distrust of institutions is a big deal. It is a predictor for if someone is going to believe in a conspiracy theory or a disinformation narrative here, though, you know, you've got a lot of people who are participating in some of those institutions that some of those other people might not trust so much. So we've got people where the institutions are really working for them uh, or are part of those institutions, and they're highly educated and they probably have encountered how to spot fake news, one page helpful document before in their past. Right our favorite. But here we are, right? Misinformation and disinformation adapts so rapidly that right, there isn't a rule of thumb to be able to spot fake news because the next time it rolls around it's not fake news, it's a it's a fake person.
1: And I think that's one of our goals is that we want to break some of those stereotypes that only folks that are non-experts propagate misinformation. Is that these campaigns can be created by others, you know, other state actors you know, state governments, or folks that are part of your community. So that this, this misinformation doesn't only come from one source, and it can be tailored to fool just about any community. That's what's so difficult about this is that this was purposely curated. It looks like this was purposely curated to fool this community of highly educated experts. So that kind of blows this persona away that, well, experts aren't vulnerable to misinformation. Everyone's vulnerable to mis- and disinformation. Right.
0: Education is, might not be the fix here. Don't want to say it's, it's not effective in some situations, but if we just rely on what, what we view of ourselves in terms of like our intelligence or our education, or we know all about that. So we're fine. It feels like that's really a step towards being vulnerable than being protected.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great take home from this case is the universal vulnerability to misinformation. Everyone is at every single level, they just have different vulnerabilities. Yeah.
0: I think that's a pretty good place to
1: wrap it. Do you have any other thoughts on this? As you were saying that, I was like, no, this happens offline too, all the time too. People misrepresent themselves and we buy into this. Like, this is really complicated and hard. And I think it's just important to acknowledge the difficulty. And that this happens in all spaces, online, in person, over the phone, everywhere, you know?
0: Yeah, actually, I think that's a great place to end. Thanks for joining us. For questions or comments, use the email address datascience at asu.edu. And to check out more about what we're doing, try library.asu.edu slash data.